0: Welcome to the Baseball Lifer Podcast. This is Don Wardlow, Baseball Lifer in Residence. And it is a cold one today, 10 degrees if you go by the wind chill factor. And it's a good day to tell you that on February 17th, the first college baseball game will be played for the 2023 season. You don't have to wait even for spring training. You can listen to or watch College baseball as early as February 17th. If you've got a subject you'd like me to talk about on the Baseball Lifer podcast, send me an email. You can tell me about your favorite player or your favorite season as a baseball fan, your favorite team. You you send me a subject and I'll use it. Here's the email for me, don at com. So again, that's my first name, Don, at the baseballlifer.com. In just a minute, you'll be able to hear our guest, baseball writer, Andy Linker. We've had him on before to talk about the last World Series. This time, we're going to talk about his writing career. We'll talk about Scott Rowland, who was elected to the Hall of Fame on January 24th and will be inducted at the end of July. And we'll talk about what Andy has to say about the 2023 Phillies. So Andy's my guest. If you keep it where you got it on the Baseball Lifer podcast. On the Baseball Lifer podcast with Andy Linker. We had you early on with a focused episode concerning your visit to the World Series. And that sure was fun. And it's good to have you back, Andy.
1: Well, thanks, Don. It's good to be here again with you.
0: Most recently, Scott Rowland was elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame. That happened on January 24th, and he's going to be put in in late July. And I'm wondering if what you thought as a guy who watched Philly games all through the Rowland years and presumably followed him with the Cardinals and the Reds, uh, what did you think of Scott Rowland, the ball player.
1: Well, I, I first actually saw Scott Rowland uh, with A Reading in 1996. So I saw him when he was coming through Harrisburg. And uh, uh, I thought he was a phenomenal player then. And, and he he maintained that throughout his career with, with Philadelphia and then the Cardinals and uh, the Blue Jays and the Reds. I, I thought he was a terrifically consistent player. Uh, his, his numbers in his career – match up remarkably well and similar and actually better in a lot of ways than, than those of, of Ron Santo who was inducted a few years ago into the hall of fame. Um, so I, I, I think that's a, a very good comparison. I, I, you know, Scott Rowland is one of these fellows when you, you look at his numbers and you go, well, well here's a fellow that never led his league in anything, which is true. Uh but when you look at both sides of the ball, he was remarkably consistent on offense. I mean, he averaged 25 home runs and 100 RBIs a year. This is out of a, a you know, a, a very nice position at third base where there have been very few Hall of Famers over the years. Uh, but you take the other side of the, the, the ball and uh, defensively, uh, Roland really had no peer. Um, you know, people today rave about and rightfully so, about uh, Nolan Arenado with the Cardinals as a third baseman. He's won 10 gold gloves, and you see his highlights every night. Uh, But, you know, Scott Rowan was was Nolan Arenado before Nolan Arenado uh, was around. Um, So I I think if you look at at Rowan, you look at his career, you have to dive into the numbers a little bit. His lifetime fielding percentage was uh, 968. Uh and you look at a guy like Brooks Robinson, who everybody says is the greatest defensive third baseman of all time, his fielding percentage lifetime at the position was 971. So they're almost identical in that respect. And yeah, I think you have to look at Rowan day in and day out to really appreciate the consistency on offense and the greatness on defense. And um I I thought he was a Hall of Famer. People some people have gone mad over. His selection, and I think most of those people come from uh, uh, the Philadelphia era, have Philly's roots because they still hold a, a long-time grudge against Scott Rowland. Um, but I think if you step back and, and you, you get out of that uh, mentality, to, you're looking at a pretty special ball player.
0: If I'm going to come down in Scott's corner, I would say he's got eight gold gloves. There's only a handful of third basemen. Who have more than that, and Brooks is one you mentioned him. Nolan Arenado, who's playing now, and I think there was another one with ten. But Mike but, Schmidt, Mike uh, Schmidt, Michael Jack Schmidt. <laughs> so when when
1: when Rowan retires, the only defense, the only third baseman with more gold gloves, as you mentioned, Brooks Robinson was sixteen. Then there's Mike Schmidt with ten, and, and in here or eight rather, and here is Scott Rowan with eight. Now that's pretty special. Now of course you go back a ways and you have a uh, third baseman back in the in the late 40s and 50s named Billy Cox who was outstanding, but they didn't have the Gold Glove back then. Um, but you know Rowan's in, in very rarefied air with with uh, with Robinson and Schmidt and now Arenado's in that group, and uh, that's a pretty special group of third basemen. There've only been 19 third basemen in the history of the game to. Uh, Going to the Hall of Fame, and one of those nineteen is is Paul Molitor, who actually spent uh, the great majority of his career as a DH and and not at third base. So it's a pretty select group, and you know you run down the names, and it's uh, you know Frank Baker and uh, Boggs and bread and Jimmy Collins and Chipper Jones and George Kell and Fred Lindstrom and Matthews and Robinson and Rowan and Santo and Schmidt and. High trainer, that's pretty special. And and Rowan again, when you look at the totality of his career, uh, offensively his numbers stack up very well with those players. And defensively, uh, as we talked about, only only Robinson and, and Schmidt were be, you know better statistically at third base uh, than Rowan during his career.
0: This is the Baseball Lifer Podcast. on Wardlow here with Andy Linker. I was with the. New Britain Rock Cats in 1996 in the Eastern League. And I came through there when when Scott Rowland was in Reading and we saw Vladimir Guerrero in Harrisburg in 96. So talk about a bumper year
1: for the Eastern
0: League 2 Hall of Famers in one year.
1: Well, and you're going to have one that, that uh, you can add to that group in a year or so. And that was Todd Helton with New Haven. Uh, w- was in the Eastern League in 96. In fact, he and and Vladimir Guerrero were double-A all-stars that year at the double-A all-star game in Trenton. And Rowan would have been there, except uh, uh, he was promoted to triple-A Scranton-Wilkes-Barre just uh, uh, a couple of weeks before the game. Now, Otherwise, Jim, you would have had three Hall of Famers in that game.
0: Jim Lucas, my play-by-play partner, mm-hmm. when the beer's cold and the wings are hot, he... He stands up for Vladimir Guerrero as the greatest player we ever saw. And on the other side, I stand up for Mariano Rivera. But Roland, while he did not have the flash of a Michael Jack Schmidt, he had the consistency, which you pointed
1: out. Obviously, no third baseman has hit more home runs uh, than Mike Schmidt. And and no one, uh, well, he he and George Brett uh, have driven in more runs than anybody. Uh, well, that's not true. You know, Chipper Jones has, but you know, Schmidt, Schmidt was uh, Schmidt was not the same uh, hitter that uh, that that uh, that Rowan was in terms of batting average. Uh, Rowan was a two eighty one hitter, and uh, Schmidt was two sixty seven. Of course, Schmidt had the home runs. Uh, they were remarkably similar with RBIs, um, and and they were both excellent base runners. There's a lot of comparison. Both were very Um, quiet leaders in their own way, neither one was. Uh, maybe it's that Midwestern roots, you know. Uh, uh, Rowan's from Indiana, Schmidt's from Ohio, and uh, maybe it's just quiet in that part of the country
0: with Andy Linker on the Baseball Lifer podcast. I've known you as a newspaper reporter, and, and since then, since you've retired from that, I see your posts on Facebook regularly now as a boy. I knew I wanted to be on the radio. I wanted originally to be a disc jockey and play country records, but uh, (laughs) I ended up broadcasting baseball for 12 years. And when I was done with that, I started writing country songs, which I still do. Now, did you, from, from school days, did you think I'm going to write for the
1: newspapers? Well, that's a good question. When when I was a kid, I, I wanted to be the next Willie Mays. Um, but as I as I got older, I got into my early teen years, and I realized, well, I was not going to be the incarnation of Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle or, my goodness, even Billy Burke Um, You know, by 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 the time I got to college, I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to be able to really play anywhere as remotely close to that level. Uh, so maybe it's a it's a good idea to write about it. I was very blessed. On I grew up in Philadelphia. Uh, which I realize can also be a curse. Um, but actually there were four uh, daily papers in Philadelphia when I was growing up and and uh, they all had outstanding sports sections. Uh, and my father was a school teacher and, and every day he would bring home all four papers. So I was exposed to some some great sports writing. Uh, 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 Frank Dolson and Bill Lyon and, and Ray Dittinger and the, the list is endless, Sandy Grady. Uh, from an early age and, and realized that this is a pretty good uh, gig. These guys are, are going to games and writing about it and, and people are, are reading it. So I thought that was pretty good, you know. Um, so I kind of gravitated. I mean, I played baseball uh, throughout my life. I, I played up through my sophomore year of college and uh, actually uh, was dusted off to play in an over-40 league in Harrisburg. Uh, I was dusted off when I was 50 to do that. And, uh, so I played, but, but it was always more fun. I found, uh, uh, to, to, write about players and games and moments than, uh, trying to catch, uh, ground balls up the metal.
0: Back before the internet, there were a lot more small papers where a young man could cut his teeth. Where did you learn to be a newspaper writer?
1: Well, I, I started at, uh, my first job was at 17 years old, uh, at a weekly paper in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, that was an internship. I I went to Penn State, Don, and and um, uh, the Daily Collegian at Penn State uh, back then, uh, which seems like in the 30s, but it was really the late 70s and early 80s. Uh, had back then and still do today one of the best college papers in the country. It was a uh, the Daily Collegian was a, a, f- a five days a week a daily that was not affiliated with the university. And uh, it just produced some terrific talent, Uh present company namely me ex- excluded from that. But, um, you know, I really learned an awful lot there. I went from, uh, graduated from there and, and actually went to work uh, uh, full time in Bloomsburg at a paper that was smaller than my college paper. Uh, and then from Bloomsburg, I, I went to Wilkes-Barre and uh, spent a couple of years there and then came down to Harrisburg in 1984 and has been here ever since. I can't get off the Susquehanna River, it seems. Um, so I, I spent uh, 24 years at the Patriot News in Harrisburg, and um, all in all, uh, oh gosh, 32, 33 years in the business overall. And uh, then I retired. You know, are you familiar with the Shawshank Redemption?
0: Absolutely, great movie and an excellent novella by Stephen King.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know how Andrew Dufresne gets out of uh, Shawshank Penitentiary at the end, digs his <laughs> way out. And, well, that's kind of how, I, that's kinda how I, I, I got out of the newspaper business. I got to the other side and went, hey, this is pretty good. And uh, I've been enjoying retirement for a few years from the newspaper business. I'm sure you knew by
0: then what the internet was doing to the newspaper business and continues to do to it.
1: Well, you know, it, it, it's funny. You mentioned, I remember back, uh, this is 30 years ago. Remember the Palm Pilot? Yes, uh, I've heard of yeah. it anyway. They never right, made yeah.
0: one in Braille.
1: Well, <laughs> it was basically the, the size of a book, a small book, a paperback book. And and I thought when I first saw one of those, because, you know, I always thought the newspaper business, and, and, and so many of us in the industry thought this, we're bulletproof. I mean, it's great you have you have laptops and you have the internet, but you know what? Those are, are you're all tied down to desktops at home. Uh, so until they can figure out a way that, it, you know, you can marry, you know, you can figure out a way to, to make one of these things that you can take on the train for your daily commute where people, you know, normally read the newspaper, the newspapers are okay. And then I saw the Palm Pilot about 30 years ago, a colleague of mine had it. And and I asked her what it was, and she showed me. And I thought to myself, you know, if they can ever marry the internet to a device like this, we're all out of business, <laughs> you know. And, and sure enough, you know, the technology came along, and we now have iPhones and iPads, and and uh, and, and my daughter and my wife got me this uh, Apple Watch, which which makes me feel like Dick Tracy. Uh, you know, you can do anything now, uh, literally on the wrist of your hand. Um, uh, so it's amazing. I, I find that newspapers have lasted so long. They've been around for more than 400 years. Um, and they're still hanging on, but the technology is out there today that is rapidly making them obsolete, which is, you know, a shame, but by the same token, you know, uh, the automobile down has been around for 120 years, but we're, we're not, we're no longer driving Model T's. So you got to kind of move with the times. And they've even come up with a way that blind
0: people can operate the iPhone and the Android phone and get our news that way. Because in the 90s, the way I got my news was there was a telephone number that I would call. Mm-hmm. Dave Barry, who I think is the funniest man alive, yes. <laughs> was was a columnist in Philadelphia until 86 when he went to Miami did mm-hmm. you did you read him and were you lucky enough
1: to ever meet him while you lived in Pennsylvania I never met Dave Barry but I, I I've read him over the years uh that's why I laughed because you know I used to uh read him all the time I haven't read him in, in, in a while but uh but yeah I used to, to to read him quite a bit and you know he had some books out and they were fantastic and you know I so, but I, I never had the pleasure of meeting them uh so going back though I was thinking about you um, uh, this morning and and I first met you in 1993 when you were with New Britain and and I remember talking to you about all the prep work and the hours you put in uh with, with your Braille typewriter just to get ready for one game and i thought that was fantastic and then i fast forwarded 30 years and even less than that you're co- i mean i'm putting something on facebook and you're commenting on it and i just find that fascinating that the technology has progressed so far that that folks that that, that have disadvantages are able to um do what you know, do what they, they, they want to do that way. I you know, and, and be able to communicate uh that we do and that you offer feedback and insights on the posts I have, I, I think it's terrific.
0: You know, the the first Jaws, and by the way, Jaws is the screen reader that blind people use. Okay. The first the first one I saw was in nineteen ninety-nine, and that was year nine of my career as a broadcaster. And I was able to buy my earliest computer and my earliest jaws but they have just evolved tremendously and but as early as 2000 I was able to do the kind of research that I needed to do for my broadcast for my last couple of years and then computers made it possible for me to work in other lines of work after that. We've talked about your newspaper writing career and as we were talking about Dave Barry, he called it a career himself and has focused on books. Yeah. Have you ever thought of having a book with the name Andrew Linker on it?
1: Well, I have four, actually. <laughs> um, after I uh, left the newspaper business, escaped from it, very Andrew Dufresne-like style, uh, I uh, I started writing books. They're or, or Harrisburg-centric, but my first book came out in uh 2012 and i was i was just planning to write one book basically because i had all these stories that i i uh i would always share with my wife and at that point our, our daughter was four and, and five and already starting to roll her eyes like mommy doesn't dad ever stop telling <laughs> stories you know so we'd be on trips somewhere and you know we're driving to north carolina or or ohio and and i'm just telling these stories about the 93 senators or moises Alou, once was my translator uh you know things like that and and you know finally my wife said to me in, in uh 2011 she said you know what you ought to write a book and paul put all this in there and, and basically punish other people with the same stories you've been punishing us with <laughs> beautiful i love it so I, I i did my first book in 2012 and and it was i was just planning to do one and done and After the first book came out within the first two weeks, I had four people, independent people that didn't even know each other, come up to me and say, well, they read the book. When's the next one coming out? You know, and if you ever want to get a writer to do something, just appeal to his ego. And uh, (laughs) so I had one come out the next season, which was uh, uh, frankly, all the stuff that I put, I I couldn't fit into the first book. And that was going to be done with that. And, uh, and I promised my wife, because I promised my wife after the first book that I would get around and finally do the laundry list, which was three pages, double sided, single space, single lined, of, of things I had to do. And I promised I would do it after the first mm-hmm. book.
0: Exactly. I it, used to be married. I know about those lists.
1: Oh, yeah. Then came the second book and the list got a little bit longer. And um, five years after that, the senators asked me to. Uh, put together a record book for the team because they never had one. Um, so that's I did amazing,
0: that. Cause that's a team that's been around forever and ever and ever. And well, not only have they just been around, but especially in the nineties, they were awesome.
1: They were. And, and nobody ever bothered to really, uh, in the front office there, keep track of it. And what records they did have, uh, they lost in uh, one of the many floods that, Harrisburg uh, gets over the years. In fact, you may be
0: interested to know the very first minor league game I ever attended was on City Island. Oh, what year was that? That was 1989. Okay. The the New Britain Red Sox, who I would later work for, came into town. And the reason I went from New Jersey was, well, twofold um the, the this was a scheduled doubleheader they still did that back then <laughs> yeah. and it was the only one on the schedule and of course I'm, I've always been on a budget so I wanted two games for the price of one and my uncle Harold lived in Harrisburg and okay. he was he was willing to put me up for the night so I didn't have to spring for a hotel So in 1989, uh, it was an interesting weekend. I did a Yankee doubleheader on Friday night. I did that into a tape recorder, like I did all my games then. Okay. Um, did Did a doubleheader in Harrisburg on Saturday, spent the night with Uncle Harold, and did a Phillies game on Sunday. And that was my first taste of the load that a regular announcer would have to carry. And it was still two years before I turned pro.
1: Yeah, well, that's outstanding. In 89, that was a good Harrisburg team. They uh, they went to the Eastern League Finals that year. They were swept by Albany. But that was a team that had West Chamberlain and uh, Jeff Bannister and Moises Alou was on that team.
0: As we approach the end of our baseball life for podcast with Andy Linker, the 11th best team in the country last year, the Philadelphia Phillies, made the World Series that brought you onto our show after you attended game five. Right. What do you think about the 2023 Phillies? Do you think they might have a shot of A making the postseason again again and B making another World Series?
1: Well I think they definitely shot at the postseason again. Um you know it had a terrific upgrade. They've had several upgrades um but the biggest one of course was Trey Turner. Um, who I, I thought was the best uh shortstop in the in a very uh shortstop heavy free agent market. uh Shane Turner or Shane Turner, excuse me, Shane Turner goes back to the Red Phillies days. Trey Turner um, brings to, you know with the Phillies something that they they really lacked last year and that was a a bat the ball guy. Uh, you know, the Phillies for for uh their very unlikely run, uh, to the World Series, had this nasty propensity of striking out quite a bit, and you know you have a guy like Car- Kyle Schwarber at the top of the lineup, which is terrific. You know he hits 46 home runs, but he strikes out 200 plus times. Um, Trey Turner, they'll, they'll probably slot into the number two spot in that order. Uh, will will walk the work. He walk. He will. He will put the the ball in play which is something that the Phillies need because they far too often would have a lineup stacked with, yeah, guys who are very explosive offensively, but boy, they could go, you know, major portions, major innings of the game really without ever touching the ball. But they return uh, pretty much everybody. Uh, They add Trey Turner, of course. Uh, The big thing will be uh, how well they can tread water until Bryce Harper comes back. And if they're fortunate, Harper comes back from, uh His surgery uh, sometime around the All Star break, and and they should be able to kind of, you know, hold their ground a little bit. I mean, their starting pitching is is really outstanding. When you have uh, uh, started off with Nola and Wheeler and uh, and Suarez, and uh, you know, a wild card in there is they they signed Taiwan Walker, uh, formerly of the uh, of the Mets and Seattle uh if he can stay healthy he's a really good number four starter so um you know they have a couple of young guys coming along that will be in double a AA and triple a this year and, and uh, Mick abel and and uh andrew painter uh they may be in the big league sooner rather than later uh even though they're very young um yeah do i think they'll they'll uh they'll be a playoff team i i think they have an excellent shot at the playoffs and as they. As I taught everybody last year, you can be the last team to get into the playoffs and and, and go within a couple of games of winning the World Series. Final question for Andy Linker on the
0: Baseball Lifer podcast with Don Wardlow. I think we have two changes coming which are going to speed up the game. And you tell me what you think about the two changes. One is the pace. Clock mm-hmm. with the batters and the pitchers having to move more rapidly than they do. I have heard this in the minor leagues and it seems to work. And the other is uh, less radical shifting. What do you think those two changes will bring to the game?
1: Well, the first is the, the, the pitch clock is, you know, I've seen it work in the minor leagues since 2015. And, uh, you know, I, I've I can't stay away from the game, Don. I'm, I'm the official scorer and have been since 2016 uh, with, on City Island with the Harrisburg Senators, and, and so I'm subcontracting with uh, Major League Baseball to do that, which is wonderful. It it, uh, it gives my wife uh, 70 days off a year from having to hear all my stories, <laughs> um, so it puts me on the island, uh, and I've seen the clock work uh, every year, and I think it's worked very well since 2015. Uh, it gets batters moving. Uh, you know, it cuts down on, on players who feel like they need to listen to an entire soundtrack uh, for walk up music, right? Uh, it will speed up the game. Uh, it's taken, depending how you look at it, uh, some people, you know, it's taken as much, much as 20 minutes off a game in the minor leagues. It's so it's a significant change now. How that translates to the big leagues, uh, I don't know if you're going to pick up 20 minutes only because, uh, all these games, you know, are ne- are, are locally televised and uh, many of the team, you know, teams are getting enor- enormous amounts of money in TV revenue. Uh, so, that, you know, you got to make that up, you know, so that people are going to be showing their ads like they always do. Uh, but, yeah, you know, and the short answer is I think it's going to help in the big leagues. Uh, you're going to have a lot less uh, guys walking around uh, the days of Nomar Garcia Parra. Adjusting all the all the batting gloves he has and everybody else's batting gloves, those days will come to an end. Uh, as far as eliminating the shifts, I think that'll help bring some offense back into the game. Um, you know, there are guys who are just, you know, dead pole hitters as left handers who, who, you know, have been in, hitting into the shift uh, for years and really hurting their averages. And I think you've seen a reflection of that. Uh, in the decline of batting averages over the last few years, that coupled with the increase in strikeouts. So I think that's going to add more offense to the game. Uh, you know, another, another change. It's a subtle change is they, the bases are, are larger now, which is going to get a base runner from, you know, first base to second base on a stolen base attempt, you know, a nanosecond quicker. And over the years, we, you know, we've seen how close plays are and how, umpires have to make a split second decision and now the bases are a little bit larger and that's going to you know that's going to add to the running game they they put that in the minor leagues last year i don't know if it added anything to the running game um but we're going to see how that 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 plays out but to go back to the, the pitch clock and the elimination of the overly dramatic shifts i like them both and i think they're both going to help the game
0: in another month spring training will get underway and then in at the end of march we'll have baseball and hopefully we'll have you again to talk about baseball once the season gets rolling andy linker reporter writer baseball lifer like i am (laughs) welcome and thanks again for being on the show
1: don my pleasure thanks for having me anytime you want to talk just give me a call
0: Well, that was fun having Andy Linker appear again on the Baseball Lifer podcast, and he really surprised me. I've been reading his work on Facebook for years, and I did not know he'd written a book, when in fact he's written four books, all of which can be gotten on Amazon. If you want to send me an email concerning this program, by all means do so. The address to do that is... Don at the com. So it's my first name, Don at the baseballlifer.com. Give me a show topic. Tell me what you think about the program. Anything you'd care to say, send me an email. Hopefully, you'll join me again next Friday. Thanks a lot.